Well, it's a joy to, to be back with you. Thank you for your many prayers uh, for New Zealand. I could see Marty and Dave back there. If you didn't get a set of notes and uh, you would like a set of notes for today, just put your hand up, and as those men come down, they'll put that down the aisle. You might have your own note-taking system, but if you'd like something to follow along with where we'll be today, just go ahead and keep your hand up, and uh, he can put, they can put that in your hands. Fantastic. It'll help you follow along with what we're going to do today. Thank you for your prayers while I was in New Zealand. I really appreciate that. I was at the Impact Bible Conference and uh, one of the largest conferences that they do, at least of the kind in New Zealand. And it was a real joy, a real joy. Uh, was there with a, a number of people and it was a great joy. Thank you for your prayers. I did get a little sick one day and was able to recover, but I've been going there for 23 years or so. I think my first year was 1990, and so it's been a little while, and so those are friendships over a long, long time. Very, very needy country. Pray for New Zealand. It's funny because it's so beautiful, and yet at the same time, an incredible need. I wouldn't say the need is any greater in Uganda than it is in New Zealand. With Shannon was with us a couple of weeks ago. I think the need is as great in New Zealand for the truth of the Word of God. But thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your help yesterday. For some who have moved, we really appreciate that. It was our third move inside of a year. I suppose I should say that out of where we were in Southern California to Reedley, and now we're in Kingsburg, which will be a little bit more central here, at least to the church office, and I uh, just wanted to say a word of thanks for those who helped us get from uh, one place to another. Um, I can't believe, though, that Marty picked such a hot day. It would, no, he didn't pick that day. That, that was my choosing as we got back. It was a very hot day yesterday. So as we get back, as I finished First John a couple of weeks ago, I thought it might be just appropriate, maybe with Father's Day coming next Sunday, to maybe just do two weeks towards the men. And I thought the message that I could not preach in New Zealand regarding leadership in the church, I thought I would give it to you since I had that in my bones to give and could not give it. And then I thought with Father's Day, as I mentioned, being next week, I thought maybe we could go a couple weeks on the theme uh, on being a godly man and four men with the thought that maybe we could begin in the book of James on June 23rd. So allow me just to take these next two weeks to focus on our men. Now for this morning, I've titled this message out of the Word of God, Male Leadership in the church. And I want you to take your Bible and open it to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, addressing the issue of male leadership in the church. Now, as you open to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to take you to what is what I would call the primary theme of the book. Sometimes you have to hunt for that theme. Other times it's placed right in the Word of God. And here is one of those times where Paul, as he writes to his young son in the faith, squarely tells us what it is. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There it is. He said, I wrote, verse 15, that you might know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That is the primary theme, how to behave in the household of God. The secondary theme that Paul gives to Timothy in this wonderful pastoral epistle is the primacy of character. 
the primacy of character. And what Paul teaches here is that character precedes position, okay? Who you are must be aligned with God's standards before you will ever be profitable in a position of influence in the church, at least if that church is operating under the lordship of Christ. Now, as you look at chapter 3, he puts this instruction together here for church leaders from verse 1 down through 13. That is the flow. What does Paul say to those who are in leadership? And maybe this question, what kind of character are they to possess? The the scripture's very clear what that man must be. Howard Hendricks, in fact, I see Dr. Beely out there and his wife are here. Uh, Greg, raise your hand. Um, Greg is one of the favorite professors over at the Master's College. And just when I say that name, Howard Hendricks, and I see you, I remember that. Howard Hendricks was a famous uh, teacher, uh, professor at Dallas Seminary for many, many years. A wonderful leader in his own right. And here's what Hendricks said on the church. He said, the greatest unresolved problem Confronting the church today is the screaming need for leadership. End of quote. And I believe that's true. It is a screaming need for leadership. Now, as we walk into this passage, as we give focus to our men in the next two weeks, let me just give you three important reminders before we step into the text. We're going to be looking, number one, at the qualities that an elder must model. But make no mistake about it. These are qualities for every single man in this church. When you hear these qualities come out this morning, if I get to them next week or we go a different way, they are, make no mistake about it, qualities that every man should desire, that every man should shoot for. Meaning this, you may be single, but these qualities are for you. You may be a married man with children. You say, I'm not an elder. These qualities are, are for you. In other words, as the word of God gives us the character of a godly man, Paul is saying that an elder must model this, but that's no exception for none of you not to live at that principle. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example, and I'll just throw it out. We're going to get to a one-woman man. Just because you're not an elder, you don't want to walk out and say, well, boy, I'm just glad that doesn't apply to me. Do you see what I mean? These are qualities that every man, every single man, every junior high boy, every elementary boy should desire. So understand, number one, just as a, as a reminder, these are for all men, but an elder must model them. Secondly, let me just say this, that the scripture uh, produces objective qualifications to test the subjective desire for those who would serve Christ. In other words, here's the objective qualifications, and they must be matched with a guy's internal desire. It really wouldn't matter if a guy had an internal desire to be a leader and he didn't meet these objective criteria given here. And one of the things you're going to find is certainly that God is looking uh, not for gifted men. He is looking for a godly man. And then thirdly, just by way of reminder, I would say that this list is comprehensive in nature. Here, in 3, 1 through 13, are the qualities of spiritual leadership in the church. If you're a young woman, if you're in junior high, if you're in high school, if you're a college-age woman or a woman that's single and working, marry this guy, okay? Okay? Marry this guy. I mean, look for the character of this kind of man. And so he's going to address leadership as a whole, but he's also going to come at us that these are godly characteristics for all men. 
So then, what are the key ingredients that are necessary for a man to be a leader in God's church? Let me just uh, touch on a couple of important thoughts out of the text of 1 Timothy. And I'm going to hit these quick and then we're going to move. First, the preeminence of Christian leadership. The preeminence, it's there on your notes, in Christian leadership, and it's going to come up on the screen as well. Look at the text with me in chapter 3, verse 1. It says there that the saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. In fact, in the NASB, I remember it as, this is a trustworthy statement. And just stop there just for a second. There's only five statements in all of the New Testament that are a trustworthy statement. Or when it uses that phrase, this saying is trustworthy, there's just five different places and they're very, very important. In fact, let me show you one other place. Just look back maybe on the same page in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Certainly you would say this is a trustworthy statement. It says there that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost, he said, or the foremost. That's a trustworthy statement. There's one here in three one. There's another one in chapter 4 and in verse 9 and then a couple other places in the pastoral epistle, okay? So the saying, the idea here is the saying is sure. When you see that idea here of a saying is trustworthy, it means that it is to be believed. And whenever those statements are found in the pastoral epistles, the thought here is that it is a saying or a thought of great importance. So trustworthy is the statement that no man can disregard it. So right here, we're beginning here with a statement on leadership. You say, well, Scott, what's the statement? Well, look back in the Word of God at 3.1. This is the trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. And so here is the exalted role of Christian leadership, or at least in this beginning principle, the preeminence of Christian leadership. Number two, just to touch on these things, the prerequisites of Christian leadership. You say, what's the prerequisite? Well, look at it again in 3.1. It says there, and I'm reading from the ESV, which is interesting. It says, the saying is trustworthy, and then it says, if anyone. Now, in the New American Standard, it actually says, if any man. ESV took a little liberty here to translate that word, anyone, and I think it's fine. It's nothing wrong. It's not that it's trying to be a feminist translation. You could translate it, anyone. But what you want to understand is that in the language, it is masculine, that term, anyone. So anyone is fine, but it is a masculine gender. And so the prerequisite of Christian leadership in the church, in the New Testament, for today, in the 21st century, is limited to a man. In fact, all the other qualifications that flow are given in masculine form. In fact, as you just follow the flow of the text, if you look back at chapter 2 with your eyes, you'll notice that from verse 9 down through 15 is on the role of a woman. And so as you get to chapter 3, verse 1, it's only natural to see the role of a man. So the prerequisite of Christian leadership is it must be a man. Thirdly, let me note this for you, the passion of Christian leadership, the passion of Christian leadership. Look at the text again, and I'm just picking a few things out here. I don't want to be overly exhaustive, but it says, the saying is trustworthy if anyone, and here's the word, aspires to the office. That word aspires, there's the passion The word for aspire literally means to stretch out his hand. It's the ideal of to aspire after it. 
You could even translate that word to long after it. The, the ideal is to seek after it. And so he gives here the passion of Christian leadership. He says this is the type of man that is aspiring, if you look closely, it says to the office of an overseer. Some would actually say that this statement, this trustworthy statement, is harmful when it uses the word aspire. Um, they would say that it, it, you know, it's, not a, it's not a good choice. It encourages men to a sinful aspiration to church leadership. But, beloved, that is decidedly wrong on a couple of fronts. Number one, what they're aspiring for here is the function and specifically the character of the work that Paul said is a fine work. In other words, you're not after it for yourself. You're desiring in the text there a noble tax. So first, there's got to be this aspiration. And secondly, when Paul wrote this letter, this office, this overseer, often meant great personal sacrifice. Persecution was constant. I hardly think he was checking somebody's motives there. But here, a man called to Christian leadership, I would say this at, the, at least, has an internal passion so strong that it moves him toward an objective external pursuit of that goal. And so here the passion is not for the position, it is not for the prestige, it is not even for the power of it, it is for the work of ministry, it is for, at the end of 3.1, the noble task. In fact, Patrick Fairbain, in his excellent work on the pastoral epistles, said, quote, this is not the prompting of carnal ambition, but the aspiration of a heart which itself has experienced the grace of God and which longs for others coming to participate in the heavenly gift, end of quote. And so here this passion is pure. It is for the work, not preeminence. And here Paul is not warning against ambition per se, but against obviously any self-centered ambition and desire. But here, when you look at male leadership, This man is passionate about the work of God. This man is passionate about the reputation of God. This type of man, and you pray that we have these kind of leaders. The last thing that we will ever do is grab a pair of pliers and put them on a guy's teeth and begin to pull them and say, we desperately need you. No, probably what Paul would say internally out of the man's heart is a passion. There's an aspiration for it. There's a desire for it. It's so strong that he wants to see the things of God done excellently. He has, if you will, a zeal for the house of the, of the Lord. In fact, just let me note something for you. Look down in your Bible. You'll note when it says, if anyone aspires, or literally, if any man aspires, It says to the office of an overseer, comma, it says this, that he, do you see this, desires a noble task. Now, now that word desires there is fascinating to me. It's the Greek word epithumia. You say, well, Scott, what does that mean? That's just Greek to me. Well, epithumia speaks of, uh, here's how I would say it, just a strong desire. It speaks of it in intense desire. It's a human desire. If somebody said, what's, a, what's this desire? Well, the, the word is epithumia. It's a strong desire. What's fascinating about that is that's the same Greek word for lust, okay? For lust. Now, uh, and so you say, well, well, what's the difference? The context is going to make it uh, clear, is it not? You remember when Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee youthful, what? Lust. He used that word. Flee. You say, well, what, what is he saying? Flee a youthful desire. Obviously, in that context, that's a sinful desire. But in the heart here that's pure, in the motive that is pure, this is a desire that the man of God has a passion for the work of God. And I pray that God gives us these kind of men. I pray that we're not getting a pair of pliers. I pray that we're not going to go get warm bodies. 
I pray that we're going to have the type of flock where so many men are energized by the Spirit of God, that they care for the reputation of God, that they care for the house of God, that they have a zeal for God, that they're inclined in their own heart towards this. Now, some of this is linked to guys who are called towards the ministry. I don't think it has to be. I think he's just giving here the desire of a man of God. And he's giving, if you will, the passion for Christian leadership. This type of man is aspiring after it. This man has a, has a passion for the work and for the reputation of God, for the glory of God, for the things of God and the things of his kingdom to be done right. This is the type of man, and I'm putting it in biblical language, who is stretching out his hand, who is aspiring to it, who is longing after it, who is seeking it, who is passionately pursuing the work of ministry. You say, well, Scott, that, that may not be me. I'm okay with that. You say, you, I just, I, I want to serve. Okay, then serve with all your might. But when God begins to do a work, at least in an elder, at least in the beginning work in a leadership team, you begin here at some point with the guy's passion. And so that's what we begin to look for is a man who has that desire. He's aspiring to give himself after the office. So you've got the preeminence of Christian leadership. You've got the prerequisite of anyone technically a man. You've got the passion. Number four here is the position of Christian leadership. The position, just we're touching on it this morning. If anyone aspires, it says here, to the office of an overseer. Simply put, in other language, the office of an elder. That word is used interchangeably in the Word of God, an overseer, an elder. Elders have been given the incredible position and responsibility before God. You say, well, Scott, what does the Word say about being an elder? The Word says there of two functions in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, the ideal of ruling and the ideal of teaching. It's the ideal of leading, and it's the ideal of feeding the flock. This elder is modeling the biblical principles, and he's teaching the biblical principles. He's directing the church as it goes forward, and he's feeding the church. In other words, it's the two-role function of an overseer. He is always, if you will, leading the flock, to the green pasture, then feeding the flock. That is the role of an elder. In Acts 20, 28, he uses the word shepherd and he tells the elders there to shepherd the church of God. You're guarding the sheep, guiding the sheep, feeding the sheep, giving soul physician care to the sheep. And you have a number of biblical commands. One of those commands is in Titus where an elder is to exhort and refute those who contradict. And 1 Timothy 5.2, he's to be an example. James 5.14, an elder is to pray for the flock. And there's so many other things given in Acts 15. They're to set church policy. But this is the exalted position of Christian leadership. It's an overseer. It's an elder. He's leading and feeding. He's directing and he's teaching, ever teaching at some outlet, at some form, or he himself is not an elder. Number five, though, let me keep moving with you. The prestige of Christian leadership. The prestige of Christian leadership. You see it there in verse one? It says, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, it says that he desires, and it uses this phrase, a noble task, okay? A noble task. In the New American Standard, it says a fine work. Very well. It's a fine work. It's a noble task. The thought here is it is an excellent work. In other words, you got a man who's desirous of this. He is aspiring not for himself. He is aspiring for the noble task. He is aspiring to the fine work. He wants to do a beautiful work. You say, well, why is it such? Well, it carries with it an eternal perspective and an eternal reward, doesn't it? You think of the works that we can give ourselves to. Here is the work on behalf of God. And then finally, I just note this, six, the pain 
of Christian leadership, the pain. No other way than if you looked at the last phrase in 3.1, it says that it's a noble, and it does say this, task, or it literally is a fine work. In other words, it's a, it's a good work. It's a fine work, but it's work. It's a work, but it, it is a task. Ministry is work. I mean, it's not something you punch in out and punch out. It will cost you your time. It will cost you your energy. I was at the office into the hours last night. David was into the office hours last night. Jeremy was there. It's just work. It's effort. It's zeal. You're never kind of done. You don't punch in. You punch out. You, you kind of, it is a task. It's noble. It's a beautiful work, but nevertheless, it is a task. And that word task carries the idea of energy and zeal and effort. In other words, leadership is not easy. It will cost you something. So here's the preeminence. It's a trustworthy statement. The prerequisite, it says, if anyone, but literally in the, in the language, it's a man. The passion is you're aspiring and desiring. The position, it's not for yourself. It's an overseer of the work of God. The prestige is it's a noble task, and the pain is it's a task. Now, let me take you to the text. The overarching quality that becomes the character or the banner is stated of what this man must be. Look at verse 2. It says, therefore, an overseer, and here's the key phrase, must be what? Above reproach, right? All the other qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 are examples of this one overarching qualification. In fact, I didn't read it. Look at the text, though. It says, therefore, an overseer, verse 2, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? And he must not be a recent convert or may, that he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Now, there's much listed there, but listen, the overarching characteristics, if you want to underline that, the banner is in verse 2, is that he must be, it says there, above reproach. Now, if I just broke this down in a sequence for you, there's four areas that he's got to be above reproach in. One, in his personal life. Two, in his family life. Three, in his public life, okay? And then fourth, it's outside of this book, it's his church life in the book of Titus chapter one. But above reproach is the banner over which it all hangs. This is the call of a man of God. This is the call to every one of you men. Do you see what I mean? None of you are exempt from this. This ought to be the, the, the passion of the elder team, but this ought to be the passion of a junior hire. This ought to be the passion of a high schooler. Young women, look for this type of man. You say, well, what should be his character quality? Well, look what it says there. It says that it it must be above reproach. Let me ask a couple questions. Number one, what does above reproach mean? What does above reproach mean? Well, words mean something. That's why we explain it. I, I mean, think about it. You're holding in your hand the word of God. This is not an idle word. This is not a book that you pick up at Barnes and Noble. This is not, I I suppose you could pick up the Bible at Barnes and Nobles. But when you're walking in the airport and you see the books and it has leadership stuff, this book transcends all those books. This is God's word. When Paul picked up his pen, he wrote under the inspiration of the spirit of God. So what we're talking about today is what God says about leadership. If you're visiting with us today, this is not my opinion on leadership. This is the Word of God. And so all those things were coming out of the Word of God. And what Paul says to Timothy, he says an overseer must be above reproach. He said, what does that mean? It just literally means this. It means that no one can call this man into account. That's really what the word means, in kaleo. 
In kaleo means to call into the, an account. And then attached to that little verb, in kaleo, is a prefix. Now, I'm only, I hope this makes sense. It's just a negative prefix. So when you put those two together, it just, it's, it's put into a negative that no one is the thought can call this man into account. In other words, this particular man, you get it now? He's above reproach. If this is the reproach line, this man is above it. In other words, no one can grab this guy is the thought. He's blameless. There's a key word for you. If you're looking, how do I understand this? He's blameless. This meaning this, he's free from accusation free from any kind of accusation. So what God says here, I'm laughing, is a lot different than the world. Because the world would begin maybe with a guy's education. It probably might even back it up before to look at his talents. The church might even be looking at the spiritual gifts of the man in some cases. Other places are going to look for his success. Some places want in leadership charisma. But what Paul talks about, and he begins here, is with moral character. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't believe, begin with what the man does. He begins with who the man is. And he begins with the guy's character being above reproach, or therefore blameless is the thought, or literally without blemish. So the elder, the man of God, the high school young man, the college man, an engaged man should strive for this, right? I mean, an elder must model this, but moms, you want to pray for this for your sons, don't you? You would want your grandsons to be this way. You'd want your grandson to live in this way. Here's, and I don't want to teach moralism here. All of this comes from a walk with God, but here's a standard. It's above reproach. You say, what does it mean? It means, in, in this case of church leadership, that the man's irreproachable. And I'll unpack it in a couple different ways. There's no damaging charge that you can bring on this man. This particular man has unquestioned character. In other words, he's unaccused. There's nothing you can come up, I, I like this phrase, and grab him and say, aha, I gotcha. He's unaccused. And it's really probably not an English word, but I'll make it an English word. He's unimpeachable. You know how, remember when we went through all that stuff with uh, Clinton and he was up to be impeached? We'd say, this man, no, 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 no. He's unimpeachable. In other words, you could be the president of the United States and not being an elder in a church, right? This guy is unimpeachable. In fact, just to put it in the modern vernacular, There's nothing in his closet. Vines put it this way, speaking of above reproach. He says it implies, I like how he said this, not merely acquittal, but the absence of even a charge of accusation against a person, and then Vines said, or certainly a charge that wouldn't stick. In in fact, the the way I remember this, although I'm not... I don't even know if this is true, but you know when you were young and you used to cook? I used to cook grilled cheese. Remember, remember, do they still, ladies, do they still use that stuff where you would spray like Teflon on the pan, right? You, I don't know. Now they have special pans. You don't need to do that, right? But we used to spray that on the pan so that nothing in the pan that you were cooking would what? Stick to it. So to me, when I think of this man and what God's called Gosh, even me and our elders, you want to be a Teflon man, okay? You kind of just want to be a a non-stick man. In other words, if you're a girl and you're looking to date a guy, tell me, does he have this kind of reputation? You say, well, Scott, that's an elder. Yeah, I know it's an elder, but it's a goal, is it not? In other words, there's no criticism or charge that can stick. Above reproach speaks of having an unquestionable and irreproachable character before the local church and the community in which you serve. Now, let me qualify this. 
Of course, it doesn't mean that an elder is sinless. That's not what he's talking about here. It doesn't mean that an elder doesn't have to confess his sin. You and I know that from 1 John 1, 9. Anyone who says he does not have sin is a what? Liar. We do sin. I sin. Elders sin. What the scripture means here is that this particular man has sustained a reputation of blamelessness. In fact, just look over at the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 12. You know this. Maybe this is the way to clarify it. When Paul told Timothy in 4.12, let no one despise you or despise you for your youth, but set the believers uh, an example Here it is, in speech, conduct, love, in faith, and in purity. There's the example. Be an example of those things. So the question would come, what does it mean to be above reproach? It means to be a Teflon man. You you just, you know what I mean. You're not hiding something. You're not hiding anything. Your life is open. You're, 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 there's nothing that somebody can grab you on. And I just say, man, if, if you're convicted by that on an aspect, then, then confess that to the Lord. Confess that to the Lord now, because this, though this is the heart of a church leader, it should be the heart of every man. But let me ask this, because some of you are, might asking, is it even possible to be above reproach? That's question number two. Is it even possible to be above reproach. And I just say, yes, yes. I'm thinking of Daniel in Daniel 6, where the commissioners, remember, and the satraps begin trying to find a ground, remember that, of accusation against Daniel. They're like turning stuff up. Just, we got to find something on this guy. But the text says they could not find no ground or accusation, or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Man, what a man, what a dude. I mean, he's not cooking the books. And by the way, he's not a teenager there. In chapter 6, he's probably about 80. Sometimes we always think he's in the lion's den as a teenager. He's 80. He's not cooking the books. He's not taking things on the side. He's not padding his account. I I saw this week that um, Jesse Jackson's son who had to go to jail for 18 months because he was partaking of the political gifts that came into his camp and lavishing himself with those political gifts for his own expense count buying cars and Rolexes and all that kind of stuff. Listen, they looked at Daniel. They couldn't find anything. There's no accusation in the guy. They're digging for it. There's no evidence for it. There's no corruption. Why? This guy was faithful, and there was nothing that could be found in him, and so they went and found it on his God. But listen, it's possible Daniel was that guy. How about Job? Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and it says this in one one, and that man was blameless. Listen, it's possible. Does it mean that Daniel was perfect? No, but he was blameless. Was Job perfect? No, but he was blameless. The Lord said to Satan in chapter 2, verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. I love that. He was blameless. He was an upright man. He feared God. So he was blameless. Noah was blameless at a time, was he not? In 6 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man in Genesis 6 9, blameless in his time. He was blameless. I'm just saying, guys, this is not impossible here. As you walk in the Spirit, as you walk circumspectly, as the Holy Spirit fills you, you develop a fear of God and you just, you don't want to be caught on anything. That's all. I'm thinking of Jesus and, and, you, and I don't want to miss this too much. They watched him, it says in John, Luke 20, 20. Remember, he was fully a man. 
They watched him and they sent spies and pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and to the authority of the governor. And they were unable in Luke 20, 26 to catch him in, in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. They could catch nothing on him. So here's what Paul says. He's got to be above reproach. You say, well, in what areas does he need to be above reproach? I'm glad you asked that. Fourteen statements follow, okay? Fourteen statements follow. And I just note for you, God's word is not hazy. It may be real unclear where you had come from, if, if this stuff wasn't taught, but it's real clear. Can I just give you one and we're done? Kind of seems like there's lots of movement today with Hume Lake. I'll just do one and I'll, I'll be done. He must be, look back at 3-2. It says there that he must be above reproach. And here's the first statement. And it's actually under his personal life. The husband of one wife. Do you see that? And, and really, it just means that the man must be exclusively devoted to one woman is what it means. It, it means in the phrase, literally, that he's to be a one-woman man. Now, I can take you down a track of all the different things of what that means. And, of course, the Catholic Church would say that he's to be married to who? The, the church. Of course, there's some people who say that he could never be divorced. Enough for me just to say there's a number of angles to look at this. But, but what the phrase means is that this man, in his personal life, in his family, is exclusively devoted to one woman. Literally, he's a one-woman man. The sense is this. He must have nothing to do with any other woman in an intimate way. And the passage teaches absolute marital fidelity, okay? The man, this elder, this leader, must be characterized as a one-woman man who is exclusively and totally devoted to his wife. I mean, you understand, this is what an elder must be, but none of you are thinking, man, I'm just glad I'm not an elder. I just, I don't, no, no, no. You'd want this in your character. It means this, that the man is not flirtatious. It means that the man is not involved in any, I'd even say it this way, questionable relationship with any other woman. And being a one-woman man refers to the focus of the man's faithfulness to the woman who is his wife. It implies loyalty and faithfulness to his wife. Weist, the Greek scholar, said it should be his nature to isolate and to centralize his love. I mean, Jesus spoke on this. You don't even have to be physically involved. You remember he said, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his, what? In his heart. So here's a man that's pure. Here's a student that's pure. Here's a college man that ought to be pure. You say, well, I, I, I'm college and I'm, I'm not married. You should be modeling this, not dating around, checking. And so you ask the question here in leadership, are you a flirt? Are you known as a ladies' man? Are you a looker? Are you training yourself to be a one-woman man? Single men, you're not uh, absolved from this. I'd ask you this, are you jeopardizing your future leadership by your actions today? It's kind of scary. I mean, you as a single man could be committing sins that will come back to haunt you. You say, how is that? Well, 
Well, I'll show you. Look, look over in Proverbs 6. It's kind of scary. Look, look over to the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 6, it says this there. Great text. Remember this? And just, just a good warning for all of us. Can a man, and I'm in Proverbs 6.27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? The answer is obviously, what? No, it's be kind of like in the modern vernacular, duh, okay? Can a man carry fire in his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet, now don't get in the mind that time you saw on TV that guy do that, but he's just given a principle here. One can, or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go, what? Unpunished. Unpunished. Now, now look at this, verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold, and he will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery, here's the connection, lacks sense, and he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace, interesting, will not be, what? Wiped away. The NSB says his reproach will not be blotted out for jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept, watch this, no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. In other words, you can pay a thief back. But a guy who goes into his neighbor's wife, verse 35, he will accept no compensation. His reproach will be remembered. doesn't mean that he couldn't be forgiven. It just simply means that that reproach is always going to stick with him. You say, ah, pastor, I know, I know. And maybe some of you are thinking, hey, that godly man in the Old Testament named, you remember who's the guy, you tell me, who had a heart after what? God. Who was that? Who? David. So what about David? And you know, I don't have to go into Bathsheba with you. What about David? He's a godly man. I, okay, fine. I, I agree, he is a godly man. But what's his legacy? How is he remembered? Have, have you ever read 1 Kings 15? Have you ever read 1 Kings 15 verse 4? So I, I don't know. He's a man. At, well, let, let me show you. Look, look, look at First Kings. This is just a warning, okay? For you say, well, David, he, he was. Yes, he was. He was a man after God's own heart. I, I'm just, this is a projected warning to you. It, it's, a, it's a text here where this, un, this ungodly king was walking in evil. Look at. 1 Kings 15, 3, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his, what? Father. You say, well, Scott, that commends David. Well, you've got to keep reading. Nevertheless, verse 4, for David's sake, the Lord God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. In other words, even though this guy here, if you back up into verse 1, King Jeroboam, son of Neb, even though he's a wicked king, it said for David's sake, there was a lamp in Jerusalem. Watch this. You say, well, why? Because of David's sake. Look at verse 5. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, praise God, and did not turn aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, not period, but comma, except in the matter of what? Uriah the Hittite. I mean, 
That's just part of his legacy. Holy, acceptable man of God, except in that one case and so forth, and it's written in the text. So listen, here's the mandate above reproach. A one-woman man. This is the leadership that must mark our church. This is a, I would call it a pillar of commitment at Grace Church of the Valley. We want to be biblical in our leadership in what we do and you pray. I'd call that a hallmark. We want a high view of God. We want a high view of Scripture. And we want to have a leadership that is above reproach in 14 direct statements. Here it begins, not with the man's gifts, but his personal life on his relationship with his wife. Men, is this not the desire of every man? Is this not the standard for every man at GCV? Is this not the passion, Dad, for your sons? Listen, there's hope this morning. Let me just say this. If you've not been this man, looking back, then by God's grace, determined to become that man today. Amen? You you may look back and say, ah, either I was unsaved or I was saved. Listen, from this day forward, you determined to be that man. And I would just simply quietly say, you can't be that man if you're looking at pornography. Fair? You just can't. You can't be this man as a junior higher looking at, or high schooler, or college student, or a man. But if you look back and you see that, then determine to be that guy today. Let me just say, if some of you have personally suffered because of a lack of this modeling, then you've got to determine and establish a pattern of righteousness in your life to be a godly man. And you have to remember your example might not be bound up in your family. Your example ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. GCV, just as a church, would you pray this for us? Would you pray this for our church Would you pray this for our leadership? Would you pray this, amen, for our young boys? I was just sitting in the back and before, and I'm I'm looking at Strider and Ford Brown. Man, in 20 years, those dudes are going to be men, aren't they? You want this kind of thing, right, in our church and in our family and the way we model Pray for us to be this, that we might be a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.